For the past few weeks, Ukrainians have witnessed the realization of the one thing that we all feared a full scale invasion of Ukraine by its aggressive neighbor Russia. Over the past two weeks, the facade of Putin's interest in Ukraine has been ripped away, and now the world sees him for who he truly is a dictator with imperialist aspirations aimed at conquering his sovereign neighbors. Throughout this trying time, we have seen the Ukrainian diaspora mobilize in an unprecedented manner, with rallies and grassroots pressure forcing the international community to take firm action against Russia and provide aid to Ukraine. The resistance of the Ukrainian people has also made front-page news, be it from the civilians attempting to stop tanks with their bare hands, the fierce resistance of the Ukrainian army and its civilian defenders, or the resolve of President Zelensky, as he continues to rally support for his country despite the great personal danger he faces. As we live through this period, we honour all of those who have lost their lives in the war, and today we aim to summarise the events of the invasion so far. So we thought we'd start off with the Western intelligence um, believing what could happen when Russia would invade uh, for a second time into Ukraine. So uh, a lot of the media in the West believes that Ukraine would not last for that long, maximum 96 hours that cave would fall. With this, a lot of, there was a lot of hesitation in providing Ukraine with significant military aid uh, to prevent some, uh, something from happening. With this, uh, Ukraine managed to actually uh, prove to the West that Ukraine actually has a strong resolve and is able to hold off Russia's advancing army from taking major cities along Ukraine's borders. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing that after two weeks of war, uh, the Russian army has only been able to capture one major city, Kherson. And like they've obviously captured villages and towns, but this is not the place that they were expecting to be two weeks after invading Ukraine. Like The plan was that they'd get to Kiev in three to four days, install a puppet regime. And we saw in the days after the invasion, they specifically flew out former... President Viktor Yanukovych to Minsk in preparation of flying him into Kyiv to install as a puppet regime. It's it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, the arrogance of that in itself. I mean, I think for most of us, I think we're also in a bit of shock about what's actually transpired. Um, there's all the platitudes about the 21st century, but at the same time, it seems a bit um, surreal all the same. And to think that they're going to try and not only subjugate and attack Ukrainians and get rid of their government and get rid of their leader, they want to replace him with the person that they threw out eight years ago. Like the, the insult to injury that would come from something like that and, and had, it, had it come off in the way they expected, it just seems um, just obscene in modern-day society. I, th- I think beyond just the advances, and I think uh, like I think mentioned by Andrew, like Andre mentioned, um, there's obviously been for every advance that there's been and, and for every expectation from the West that Ukraine would fall very quickly uh, they've definitely rallied very well around Volodymyr Zelensky as their leader and they have exceeded any expectation that anyone would have expected of them and as part of that um, they've also launched some very very effective counter attacks and assaults back against the Russian invaders Um and probably the one that most of you'd be aware of and the one to sort of think conclusively about um, is in Kharkiv, where 
there's been several, you know, pushes of territory backwards and forwards. And ultimately, there were a lot of reports a week or two ago about uh, Kharkiv falling, um, and then uh, the, those forces were very, very strongly repelled. But I, I think it's clear that um, some of the technology being used on the battlefield, some US technology like the... Uh, the the javelins sorry, i think are the yeah. most impressive i yeah. think someone's done a statistical count and ukraine's fired around i think 400 javelins 300 or 300 and out of that 300 i think 290 Eight. or 280 have hit their target which is such a high yeah, success so rate. i mean a javelin's quite the javelin missile's quite an old missile um in terms of i guess it's, it's its origins are quite a few decades ago but obviously these particular versions are the most refined versions have had and it's interesting to see this sort of technology up against what was considered up until a few weeks ago, um, the pinnacle of Russian technology that should have been quite comparable. And those tanks are by all, some of those tanks are older tanks, the Russian side, but by all means, there are some modern tanks in there that should really be able to. to yeah, well, this. it's even it's even taking out Russia's T-90A tank, which is their like answer to the Abrams 2 tank, which is meant to be the, which is America's best battle tank. It's all the flamethrower. No, 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 no. It's a regular tank, but it's just Russia's version of the Abram oh, two okay. tank. And yeah. it's one missile. If it hits it from the top on the turret, that's where the armor's the thinnest. It takes out the whole tank. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's videos emerging of Russian tanks with improvised, like, cages on top trying to oh, deflect the missiles. Right. But they're not very successful. And I think the counterattack aspect... In general, I mean, the, the most recent thing that I think uh, has been quite a big victory for the Ukrainian army has been the ambush of the tank brigade that was coming through towards Ukraine, uh, towards Kiev. Um, and of this is one of many, obviously, pushes they've had, but this particularly has been praised by many Western analysts, generals, military officials as just being not only, obviously, the, the equipment they're using or their will- willingness to fight that we hear so much about, but just a very, very good tactical execution of of a strategy, a classic ambush, um, to the point where even one commentator, um, I think from the NATO, a former NATO Supreme Commander, said that it was you know something that would be written in textbooks in terms of the execution of how that was achieved. So, the military counteroffensives, I think, have been very. I think everyone can be proud of Ukraine's ability to fight and its ability to hold the will. But I think in terms of counterattack, we also have to consider that over the last few weeks. Um, the ability of Ukraine in the information war, spa- war space um, or the information warfare space um, has been very, very solid. Um, the ability to counter huge amounts of Russian disinformation that's obviously institutionalized and probably the best disinformation in the world. Whether whether their physical military is that good, we can question, but Russia's ability to launch propaganda and sow disinformation is second to none. Mm. Um, and they've done a very good job of rebutting that Um and and coming in um, and really winning uh, the hearts and minds of the rest of the the large part of the Western world and the rest of the planet in terms of unifying against Russia's actions and unilateral actions in Ukraine. And I think part of that comes from the fact that um, President Biden and other Western leaders have taken a very different approach to the war in Ukraine and that they've been very open in sharing specific intelligence with the general public, which up until a few weeks few months ago governments would never share this sort of information of upcoming attacks and i think that's allowed obviously more foreign journalists to get into ukraine so ukraine's then able to project its voice to a wider global audience and 
it kind of helps build that story of the local level of Ukrainian sharing videos to TikTok, to Instagram, to Facebook, to then you have like big names. I saw, uh, what's the CNN guy's name? The gray hair of the glasses. Oh, Anderson Cooper? Yeah, Anderson Cooper t- uh, today was reporting from Lviv. He's like, been there for a while. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, I agree, Alexa. I think I think the West, and I was going to say that when we talked about Western intelligence a little bit earlier, um, I think the strategy to declassify selectively and, and quite liberally <laughs> um, information about what was happening in the lead up to the invasion really did help dispel any possibility of a false flag that we all expected might happen to actually mm. happen. Like at least whatever Russia tried never really stuck anywhere yep. that anyone ever reported. Um, and and they're obviously still doing that to this day. I mean, we're hearing now um, potentially. Uh, we heard from the U.S. government that there would be potentially claims made by the Russians around chemical weapons being built uh, developed in Ukraine with with the U.S.'s support, mm-hmm. or that you know, the, and equally said that there's potential that chemical weapons might be used in Ukraine by Russian forces. And yet, lo and behold, a few hours later, we have those claims kind of realized from the Russian side. So I think it's it's going to be. Um, Something that you know, I think we are witnessing history, sadly, history that for all of our listeners and ourselves is hitting closer to home than perhaps other conflicts in the world. But at the same time, I think um, there'll be a lot said later around the uh, the tactics used in this modern war space with social media and information warfare to kind of really help as much as you can help Ukraine um, counter some of these false flag type events or other impetuses to start more conflict or escalate conflict. Yeah, I think we can't also forget that while the successes of the Ukrainian army definitely are um, worthy to note and they definitely have, um, you know, damaged the Russian advance, also the disorganization on the Russian side also hasn't helped, especially when it comes to, um, like, for example, putting a 64-kilometer convoy of tanks and armored vehicles all together causing massive bank-ups, causing uh, food shortages, um, especially when you're on roads to Kiev that are thin, that has stalled, which is a terrible strategic idea. Um, when it comes to, you've seen, I don't know if you've seen videos of Russian troops who are eating rations that expired in 2015. Um, so all of this has had a massive impact on the Russian army, its morale, and it goes back to, like we said before, the arrogance of Putin believing that he didn't need to plan that far ahead because he thought the country would fall within, you know, however many days, a couple of days, and they would um, reinstall um, Yanukovych as uh, president. And he had no plan going past that. And now we're starting to see the impact of that going forward. I think another thing that he didn't calculate on was just the resistance of all the Ukrainians in the currently occupied cities uh, along the south of Ukraine or along the Russian border up north. Um, I think he just assumed that Ukraine would kind of let um, let them through and kind of greet them as liberators, as he said. Yeah, especially um, in those more eastern provinces, yeah. like in Mariupol and stuff. I think he expected a like a hero's welcome. I'd argue even Kharkiv because it's predominantly Russian speaking, and yet they're fighting like hell. Yeah, and you have residents throwing cocktails, going out in protests. Um, in Berdyansk, I believe, and a lot of the other cities uh, along the south, um, pretty much every day they're coming out with um, Ukrainian flags shouting at the Russian army to leave and that you're not liberators and that we were free before you guys came. 
See the guy jump on the personnel carrier with yes. the flag and start waving it? was a police officer. Or the bubba with the sunflower seeds. Yeah. 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 And I think we yeah. can see that the Russian troops are getting desperate, and we saw that in the attack on the 10th of March on the Children's Hospital. I mean, that shows you the desperation that Russian forces, they're just going for a scorched earth policy now. And I think that's the next dangerous phase of this war is that Russian troops are just going to start bombing everything, hoping that they can submit the Ukrainian people into at least a surrender. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think um, there's a lot of pundits out there. There's a lot of political people that talk about this idea of, of Putin. Well, when you've been a leader for 20 years and when you've been surrounding yourself with your yes people for so long, you believe your own crap, <laughs> you know, you believe your own propaganda. I I mean, I guess that's one aspect of maybe what's happened here. Um, obviously, we're not qualified to speak on the mind of Putin. I don't know anyone, anyone is except for Putin. But I think, you know, I also don't think people can be that delusional. I mean, surely the intelligence gathering resources that exist, you know, within Russia's remit and the Kremlin's remit would understand, you know, um, there's some risk, especially after what's happened in 2014, especially that the war has been sustained in the Donbass for the last eight years. I mean, it's not, I mean, Ukraine hasn't capitulated through all that period. Um, I, I don't, I think probably, I agree. I think the general response of the populace maybe was more, you know, um, defiant than they expected. Um, but I think probably if there's the biggest surprise, I think it still comes back down to their own forces. Yep. Um, and I think it's very important to to highlight that, you know, the, the, for most of the things you see initially in the first few days of the war, it was very much young conscripts. Um, mm. And that's obviously a generation that now is probably, what, 2021, basically has lived and grown up with only one leader in Russia, and that being Vladimir Putin and maybe four years of Medvedev. Um, which, Putin light. Which, yeah, Putin light with Putin <laughs> as prime minister anyway. Yeah. Um, and as all semi-presidential systems, I mean, the, the battle between prime minister and president is pretty messy as it is, so that, that doesn't really discount him being a leader. Um, so, yeah, I think that challenge is one, that there's a whole generation of young conscripts that don't have any experience, don't have any battle-hardened experience. But certainly in the last few days and certainly the last sort of week, I think you've seen captured captured senior officers, people that are seasoned officers that have been in Chechnya, potentially been in Georgia, potentially been in Syria. Um, and when they're captured, I mean, I don't know. I, I, look, I know people are, can be under duress when they're captured, but the way they're, they're approaching these press conferences to speak, you know, and tell their side of what they saw as the perception of, you know, it's not like someone under duress. Like someone under duress will be videoed in a very controlled environment, you know, not in front of other press cameras or anything like that where – they're told to, you have to say X, Y, Z, you read this exactly how it is, and that's what we want you to do. Whereas, especially recently, where, where they've had a few of the battalion commanders and things actually can like speak after being captured, they're speaking at a press conference and they're being asked questions by other journalists. Like it's, it's a very different um, dynamic. dynamic. Yeah. And I, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I don't know if, you, I mean, Nathan, you're probably the other the other war buff here, but I don't think I've ever remember seeing anything like that. Not in a press yeah. conference sense. The yeah. ones where they're like in the room and they're making them... Um, forced to read off the... Forced like, why did you come here and stuff yeah. like that. Those ones to me were a little more... Well, it could be scripted. It reminded me of yeah. the the one from Vietnam where they did the press interview and yeah. he was saying, no, 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 we're, we're kept, you know, we're, we're good being... Good conditions. Good conditions and stuff, but he was um, 
blinking the Morse code for torture. Yeah. Not saying that's happening in Ukraine, but you could tell that there's that aspect versus putting someone out in a press conference in front of others where you don't know what they're, what questions they're going to be asked and you don't know what answers they're going to give. Yeah. It's much, you need to have more confidence that the person that you are putting out there yeah. is actually believing that the invasion is, mm. you know, yeah. a sham. A sham, exactly. Yeah. And look, I know that there is obviously some aspect to this, which is, Technically, you know, it's illegal to use prisoners of war yes. for this sort of activity of creating propaganda. At least that's the wording of, of I guess, these conventions. Yep. Mind you, the same can be said for thermobiotic weapons and um, yeah, and vacuum bombs as well. Yep. So, or cluster bombs, I should say. Um, so, I think yes, there is an element that you know this might not be necessarily the best way around things. But at the same time, I think there's there's also something very I think there's just a reality that there's a lot of disillusionment within the Russian forces, and that's why we see the lack of performance all around. Um, Well, it's the disillusionment, and I think even just their sheer surprise at how well people live in Ukraine, especially the conscripts and the troops from Siberia and outside of that European part of Russia, like on on the videos published, you see them in shock and awe that these tiny villages that they've captured have concrete paved roads and footpaths Mm. and it's like what century are you living in that your town in you know one of the largest and most powerful countries in the world doesn't have proper paved roads i think that's a very fair point i think there's a very big disconnect um, between what they've been fed for 20 years in in putin's propaganda about ukraine versus what ukraine has become especially in the past 10 you know i think that's that's a huge huge disconnect and um but then at the same time, the power of that propaganda is depressing in its own right. I mean, you've heard many stories of people calling. I mean, arguably there's about 11 million people in Russia that have relatives in Ukraine. And there's a concerted effort by like uh, that sort of started virally on social media where they're encouraging uh, Ukraine, they're encouraging Ukrainians to call their family back or sorry, Ukrainian citizens, whether they're Russian or Ukrainian, mm-hmm. to call back home to their parents and, and tell them what's happening in the war. And they're getting basically disbelief, or the parents arguing with them, um, or they, or they're very dis- they're very concerned. There's people going, "Well, we've been through four days of war with my family. My mama, ha- my mama, mother hasn't called. My father hasn't called to worry how I am." Mm-hmm. And then they've called them, and they have no idea that it's beyond a small selective special operation. Yep, um, I've heard a story of a guy whose dad didn't believe that they were bombing in Kiev, and he was like, "No, they're they're bombing in Kiev." Didn't believe it. So yeah, and it's also worrying when you consider the reporting coming from correspondents in Moscow, who say that even within that small, tight knit, you know, community within the Kremlin, Putin has now become increasingly more um, uh, separate from them and isolating himself from them. Well, did you see the table? Yeah, you got the tables. There's like, there's like, no, just sorry, just for our listeners, there's a table. Oh, there's the security briefing. Yeah, there's four people. On one side of this table, and then, like, three meters of table, more than th- I reckon six or seven oh, meters yeah, of table, 100%. and he's sitting there by himself on the other corner. And in the photo is his favorite general, who's basically the only other Russian leader or politician that's lasted the entire period of of the Russian independence since mm. 1991. Like his tro- closest trusted advisor, the person that everyone thinks might be his successor, is still sitting on the other side. So is that for his protection? Is that because he has COVID? I mean, it's 
it's well, a strange it's a strange scenario. Well, I had two theories. Because it was yeah, well, it was weird enough when Macron came and they were on that five meter yeah, table. Yeah, well, and then did you yeah, see the one does have a penchant he, for long tables. He, <laughs> <laughs> and when he recognized the independence of uh, Donbass and Luhansk, same thing. They were on two tables next to each other and he's on the other side of the room on his own table. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what are you doing, yeah. mate? Well, I mean look, that that goes without saying the Kremlin you know, the Kremlin room where they had their, you know, um, rally cry, we all agree with you, fair, fair leader. Oh, yeah, and they're stumbling at the microphone because yeah, they don't even know what they're meant to be saying. Yeah, look, I, I look. It's, sorry, guys, it's very hard to unpack this. So much has happened. But, you know, from the very beginning of this, it's just been a surreal thing. I mean, and the only thing I'm sorry I have to equate it to a little bit is the way the Russian Olympics went, you know, in 2014, you know, where you had strange stories as much as you had incompetence and corruption. Yeah. You know, like two toilets in one stall. You know, oh, right yeah, next yeah, yeah. to each other, like, it, and it, it feels like that the same way. To have a pre- like, to have Putin sitting in a in a table, getting mm-hmm. all of his closest advisors to stand up and tell him how much they agree with him, and then correcting the head of the FSB when he doesn't tow the when line. he doesn't doesn't tow exactly what he wants to say. I mean, that's the head of the FSB in in Soviet times. The head of the KGB would not be pushed around by the leader of this general secretary. Yeah. In yeah. fact, it'd probably be more the other way around. And so that. I mean, obviously, we know his former KGB and FSB ties, but it is concerning um, that this kind of strange. I mean, it does bring, I guess, bring credibility to this idea that it is a very, very small group of people, or even Putin himself, that have decided on this unilateral action. Yeah, um, but we can't forget the the green screening himself into the air stewardess's meeting. That was weird. The way his hand goes through the microphone. Yeah, okay, that was also very strange. Um, So now if we move on to the actions of the diaspora, I mentioned this in our introduction, but the mobilization of the diaspora has been amazing. I do not think if Ukraina's diaspora was so well organized and was this strong and had been built up like here in Australia, you know, over 70 years of building up our community, I don't think we would have seen the international support we have now for Ukraina. And I think it's very telling to show exactly how much power we have, even though we might not live in Ukraina, we still have the power to support Ukraina, to the point now where Russia is now one of the most heavily sanctioned countries. Is the most is, sanctioned. Is the, so it's past Iran and stuff. There you go. Switzerland has given up its neutral, sta- um, neutral stance with regards to Russia. Same with Finland. There you go. Finland Sweden. as well. And so that is something I think we should be incredibly proud of and we should still use and still continue to take action um, in our own countries to ensure that support is given to Ukraine because the war is still going on now and I know that they're now talking about new sanctions on oil and gas um, but I am I'm still completely not shocked but just in awe of how quickly all the communities around the world were able to get together were able to hold rallies daily in front of the White House here in Martin Place and how we're able to use the power that we have built up to actually help Ukraine in the most important time since its independence. I think I agree with you, uh, Nathan, and I think it's been it's been interesting to be a part of it. It's also been interesting to watch from the sidelines of the achievements. Um, you know, it's it's it actually uh, in some ways uh, you mentioned obviously the the seventy years in Australia or the post World War Two migration or even the um, I guess the the hundred and twenty five years of migration in places like Canada because of the amount of time i guess ukraine has always been subjugated either by the russian imperial empire or under the soviet union 
Um, we've always been in a status quo, or for a large part of our history as a diaspora everywhere around globally, we've been in the status quo of having to fight for Ukraine. It hasn't been this sort of intense fight with the threat of actual violence and war so so overtly as we have to experience now. But I think we've always had those tools and had those yeah, had those sort of that DNA within our communities, and I think that's definitely helped us leverage that very quickly when we've needed to now. And I think part of it also comes to the fact that we've now had a generation that's only ever known a free Ukraine, yeah. and I think to them to see that threatened so dramatically, I think has mobilized a lot of people. It's, it goes beyond that. It, it, it's not even that. I mean, we've had a free Ukraine, but I think arguably when we first went, like when I first went in two thousand one, two thousand two. Everyone sort of had this idea, yes, it's free, but, you know, there's, there's some issues here. It's still got a bit of cronyism. You know, there's corruption. There's a whole host of things. And we had the Orange Revolution. Mm. Things changed a little bit, but then kind of didn't. And then we had Maidan, and there was a huge change. And I think beyond just the fact that Ukraine's been free, Ukraine's been soaring despite the war for the past eight years in terms of creativity, in terms of reinterpreting classic Ukrainian culture into a modern state, um, expressing itself, you know, globally, on the, on, you know, in sporting ways and in other ways, really gaming, kind of... We covered that one, gaming industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, really kind of soaring to a point where it, it is really a very defined country. And it's almost like perhaps that was the part of the threat of why it had to happen now, that Ukraine was becoming too good an example mm. of for Eastern Bloc countries of how to successfully transition to modern democracy. For those who wish to donate to support the humanitarian aid in Ukraine, your contributions are greatly appreciated, and you can do so through the following organisations. The Canada-Ukraine Foundation's Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal, the Ukrainian World Congress's Unite with Ukraine, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America's Support of Ukraine, the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations' Ukraine Crisis Appeal, the SUM Humanitarian Aid Fund, Plus Support Ukrainian Army, the National Bank of Ukraine's National Army Fund, and Save a Life in Ukraine.